Well, if you have a Bible, you can keep it open there at John chapter 10. Uh, we'll be focusing in on verses 10 and 11 this evening, uh, but we'll be referring to other verses in the chapter as well. Uh, our theme this evening is life in a world of death. Life in a world of death. What kind of life do you want to live? What's the best life that you can think of? There's this old saying, there's that old saying, this is the life, people will say that in a particularly comfy or a cosy moment perhaps. They'll say, this is the life. Well, what is the life as far as you're concerned? For some people, it might be a particular lifestyle that comes along with reaching a particular rung on the career ladder or living in a particular part of the world. Uh, For some people, it's a new life in the sun. Maybe you've seen some of those shows on TV where a couple from cold, misly Britain decide that they've had enough and they begin house hunting in Spain or Portugal instead. Social media influencers, some of them young people living somewhere like New York or London, uh, they talk about living their best life and they have all these videos about getting the dream job or, or living the dream lifestyle. Or maybe sometimes people use the word life in terms of what people don't have. Or an experience of life that you hope that you avoid. Someone suffers a a dreadful injury or is afflicted with a horrible illness. And people might remark, what kind of life is that? We don't always like to think about it, but we are living in a world of death. And in our culture, I mentioned social social media influencers there uh, a moment ago. In, In a culture with that kind of... Um, interest and those kinds of things coming to the fore, people tend to ignore death. It tends to be about focusing on the positives, uh, particularly for young people today. Uh, we don't like to think about death. We think about it as little as possible, which makes us actually very different from most other generations and most other cultures in human history. We would prefer to focus on other things. But whether it's the war in Israel and Gaza that has caused the deaths of thousands Or the news of just one death of a beloved celebrity like Matthew Perry a couple of weeks ago. Our world cannot escape the reality of death. And the sad truth is that even if we are living our best life. Even for those who find a new life in the sun. Or would say that they are living life to the full. All of us eventually are going to die. But into our world of decay and death comes the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's one of the hallmarks of, well, all the Gospels, but certainly of John's Gospel, that Jesus often in this Gospel speaks of life. He says in John 6, for example, I am the bread of life. He says in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. And so over and over again, Jesus is defining himself in terms of life in a world of death. And here in our passage that we're focusing in on this evening, John says in John 10 verse 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Some of your translations may have and have life to the full. And we want to think tonight for a short time about what Jesus is claiming here, what he is offering as we think about life in a world of death. Now, firstly, I want, to show, I want to highlight to you this evening the threats Jesus identifies. The threats Jesus 
identifies. As we focus in here on John chapter 10, we need to appreciate what's been going on in the previous chapters uh, to bring us to this point in chapter 10. In chapter 9, Jesus has had yet another run-in with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were this relatively small group of influential Jewish teachers in Jesus' day in the culture of uh, Israel-Palestine at that time. They were extremely strict They claimed to take God's word very seriously. In particular, they were interested in the first five books of of the Bible, the Old Testament as we know it today, but uh, they were interested in the rest of it as well. And they were concerned to keep uh, the laws that they found in those first five books, over 600 laws, uh, including uh, all the civil and ceremonial laws for the Israelites given through Moses. The problem was, though, that in an effort to keep God's law, The Pharisees had piled a lot of their own laws on top of it. And in some ways the intention might have been good to begin with. You know, we we need to make sure that people keep God's law. We need to make sure there's a focus on God's law. We we want to preserve it and keep it pure. And so we'll kind of ring fence it with with other laws uh, so that people can't even get right up to breaking God's law. But it had got completely out of hand. They had laws about how far you could walk on the Jewish Sabbath, even how long you could spend brushing your floor on the Sabbath. Laws about every tiny little detail of life. And the Pharisees hated Jesus because Jesus just ignored these man-made laws. Jesus kept God's law perfectly, but he didn't worry about all these extra foolish man-centered laws. And this wound up the Pharisees no end. And in John chapter 8 and 9, Jesus has been exposing the hypocrisy and the emptiness of the Pharisees. He's been showing up their pride and the ultimate foolishness of what they've been trying to preach. And in John chapter 10 now, Jesus warns his followers about the threats they face from people like the Pharisees and others who would have claimed to offer them a path to life, who would have said, this is the wisest and and best and, and really the only way to live. But who in fact were leading people to death. Look what Jesus says, if you have your Bibles there. John 10 verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And so Jesus is using a picture there which would have been very familiar, a picture from everyday life for his first listeners to define himself in opposition to the Pharisees. And the picture he uses is of sheep being cared for uh, in the way that they were in 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 that time and place. In that time and place, at the end of a day out in the hills, the shepherds would bring all their flocks. Uh, Quite often they would bring them to one big pen. And all the flocks would would gather into this one pen. The shepherds would have a pool of money that they used to pay a gatekeeper to stand guard or to to watch over the sheep during the night. And then in the morning, the gatekeeper would open the pen only for the shepherds. Of course, he should open it for no one else. And the way that the shepherds proved that they really did own the sheep was because the sheep, of course, would respond 
to the shepherd's voice. As soon as they heard their shepherd call them, they would come out of the pen. And so that jumble of flocks would very quickly be unjumbled. That was the way that sheep were, were cared for, were, were, were herded in those, rather they weren't herded in those days. They were led in those days. They're herded in our culture. They're rounded up and they're, and they're pushed along, uh, so to speak. But in those days, the shepherds led the sheep and they responded to the voice of their shepherd, calling them out of the pen. The only other way to get to the sheep when they were in the pen was to jump over the wall, take the sheep by force. And that's what Jesus is accusing the Pharisees of doing. These men who said, we can offer real life. We can offer the path to God. It's important that people come with us and listen to us. Look what Jesus says in verse 10. (coughs) He says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And that's what he's accusing the Pharisees of doing. The Pharisees were well-educated, well-dressed, impressive-looking men. They probably, knew, they probably memorized large parts of the scriptures off by heart. But they were claiming that their own goodness was enough to save them. They wouldn't have thought of themselves as sinners at all, some of them. They claimed to offer life. But in fact, what they believed and what they were doing led to death. And we need to realize that we are living in a world full of thieves and robbers. Maybe not always of the sort of the Pharisees. We're living in a culture that is rapidly turning its back on uh, the authority of religious figures and, and, and empty religious traditions. And in some ways it's a good thing because there's a lot of what passes for religion in our part of the world that is empty. But there are other forms of thieves and robbers that people are, are perhaps not as aware of or on guard against. We're living in a world full of people or promises or promotions or lifestyles that, that offer us life, the life that you really want. But in fact, it leads to emptiness and death. For a long time, many people in our culture have assumed that if they could just be famous, they'd be happy. And even still, we're, we're in a culture where some people are famous just because they sat in a house that was live streamed, live broadcast on TV for months on end. That's, that's how they've got famous, just by sitting in a house, doing not very much, perhaps making a fool of themselves for a few months. But for a long time, people in our part of the world, a lot of people have assumed that if they could just be famous, they'd be happy. Because they would have all that comes with it. The money, the respect, the lifestyle, the opportunities. Perhaps the death of Matthew Perry that I mentioned earlier will cause some people to rethink that. One of the most famous, adored actors in the world. Dead at 54. His body absolutely destroyed by addictions. In an interview with the New York Times in 2002... Uh, Perry said, I wanted to be famous so badly. You want the attention, you want the bucks, and you want the best seat in the restaurant. I didn't think what the repercussions would be. Uh, More recently, he had said, you have to get famous to know that it's not the answer. And nobody who is not famous will ever truly believe that. Some people might not chase fame by itself, but they commit themselves with total devotion to 
to work or a sporting endeavor, believing that at some point there will be some level or experience of satisfaction in life that other people won't have. But again, listen to some of those who have actually made it in their sport or in their industry, and there's still that sense of emptiness. Brandon Flowers, for example, is the, the lead singer and frontman for The Killers. Uh, not as scary as they sound, if you haven't heard of them before. Just, just an American rock band. Uh, but their best-selling album has sold 7 million copies. Their most popular songs have been downloaded millions of times. The Killers are, uh, I think, even still on a world tour at the moment. But in an interview earlier this year, Brandon Flowers said, I still have a great deal of inadequacy, and I don't quite know how to overcome it. It's a man who sold millions of albums, whose songs have been listened to millions of times. He's, he's toured the world. He's had crowds of hundreds of thousands shouting his name and singing his songs and essentially some of them worshipping him. I still feel inadequate. See, our world would tell us if only we have this or that lifestyle, if we've if we've made it big, if we, if we have some big success to our name, we'd be happy. Or if we got that house, or if we had that person, or if we got to that degree of success in our work. And it's good to, uh, it's good to of course, appreciate and, and, and treasure our relationships. It's good to work hard. It's good to use our faculties and our gifts to the glory of God. But none of those things in and of themselves give life. In fact, those things actually, if you think about it, Sometimes drain us of life. We pour ourselves into them to the point where we're, we're not able to do them anymore. Other people don't believe they need money or fame. They're, they're relatively happy with the life they have, as ordinary as it may be. And they believe that on the whole, they're good people who will hopefully be good enough in the end. The Pharisees were extremely good people, or so they thought. But such people, friends, are ignoring the voice. Maybe you are ignoring the voice inside of us all, the voice of conscience, which tells us, as the scriptures tell us, that it is appointed for all of us to die. And after that comes judgment. And no amount of our good deeds by themselves can earn us the judgment of heaven and life. We think things, we say things, we do things that the Bible calls sin. And the wages of sin is not life, it is death. And so dear friend, are you listening to the voices of thieves and robbers this evening? Are you listening to lies about what you could have or how good you are or where you could find life that will really satisfy There are false teachers in our society today just as there were in Jesus' day. Those who claim that there is no God, no heaven, no hell. You just live and you die and that's it. That's a false gospel. That's false teaching. Buddhism is false teaching. Mormonism is false teaching. Jehovah's Witnessism is false teaching. Islam is false teaching. Secularism and the meism of our culture is false teaching. And these things may offer life, but they lead only to death. But Jesus is different. He offers us real life in a world of death. And so that's what we'll think about secondly this evening. Having thought about the threats Jesus identifies, we want to think about the life 
Jesus offers, the life Jesus offers. Look what Jesus says in verse 9. I am the door. Continuing with that imagery of the sheep pen. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The sheep pen was the safe place for the sheep. Once they were in there, they felt a degree of freedom to just wander around as sheep do and find the pasture that they needed. And Jesus says, if you've entered by the gate, uh, as a sheep would enter by the gate and is safe, if you, if you come to me, you find ease. In terms of eternally speaking, you find life, you find security. You probably don't need to be a farmer to know that sheep are easily startled creatures. You can scare them just by walking past them uh, a bit too briskly or a bit too energetically. And if they're nervous or scared, sheep are not going to stop and eat. They're not going to be able to relax enough to, uh, to just take their time and get their nourishment. But Jesus here speaks of the sense of peace and safety that he offers. And we live in an extremely uneasy world. War, economic uncertainty. In countries like ours, increasingly the crisis of mental health. People are not at ease. We find it hard to relax, which is bizarre when you think of how many means and how many ways we have available to us that are supposed to help us to relax in our part of the world. Why is that? Is it not because we've been deceived by thieves and robbers? As we've thought about already, buy this item, make these lifestyle changes, attract the interest or the affection of this or that person, and you'll have life. It's not working. We're not a nation at ease, enjoying pasture. We're we're a nation of startled, scared sheep. But Jesus says in verse 10, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. In other words, Jesus says, I came so that you could have life to the fullest. Life to the fullest. I wonder, does it surprise you that Jesus said that? Or or do you perhaps think to yourself, hmm, I'm not so sure I believe that. Jesus says he wants me to have Life, the word actually there for abundantly, it means overflowing. Jesus wants me to have overflowing, abundant life. People often doubt that because they mistake the message of the Bible as one of restriction. Is Jesus not about telling me to keep some rules? God is somehow out to spoil everyone's fun. That's what some people think the Bible is telling us. Maybe that's partly the fault of Christians. We don't do a good enough job of persuading people that we are joyful and glad, content in Jesus Christ. But being part of Jesus' flock is, is no restriction, friends. It's no, it's no limitation on us enjoying life to the full. It is actually the means of enjoying life to the full. As I mentioned there, the word in the original means overflowing. And you think, well, how does that marry with the Bible being full of these commandments limits on people's freedom. No, no sex outside of marriage. No, no drunkenness. No gods but one. Those are all limitations, are they not? Yes, the person who has accepted Christ's sacrifice on the cross, his life offered up in our place for our sins. It's true. The person who truly loves the Lord Jesus Christ, they then want to live a life of obedience to Jesus. They 
They want to stop breaking those commandments I mentioned and keep those commandments. But here's how to think of those commandments, friends. Those commandments are like the fence that you put around your garden so that your children are safe. Safe from traffic, safe from strangers, safe from anything that might harm them. If you had a a garden that was right next to a busy road or, or just perhaps to a whole, just to a busy town area, the child actually isn't able to enjoy life to the full unless you put a fence up. Because they're actually in immediate danger from all the threats of the world. The safest thing, the way for them to thrive is for a fence to be put around them. Without the fence, the children might look around and think that they're free, but they're actually vulnerable. What looks like freedom could lead to death. And you only need to look at the sad, dark world around us where people have strayed beyond the boundaries God has set for us to see how good the shepherd's boundaries are for us. You think of the whole issue, for example, of sexuality, which uh, our nation has been obsessing over for decades now and keeps taking one form or another. Today it's all about uh, gender and identity and all those things. But our society has ignored God's boundaries and sexuality for 50 or 60 years at least. How's that going? Are people happier? Are they living longer? Are they fulfilled? No, they're lonelier. Families are are more broken. Young people are more anxious and suicidal and depressed than they've ever been. For all that our society scoffs at the idea of marriage between one man and one woman for life, for all people might mock and say, not much excitement there, consistently the couples who report most satisfaction in every aspect of their lives are Bible-believing, weekly church-attending Christian men and women. We could give many other examples from many other areas of life. The point is, friends, there is simply no one else who can care for your soul like the Lord Jesus does. And if there are areas of our lives where he sets boundaries, where he sets perimeters, they are for our good. They are so that we can thrive, like the sheep within the pen can thrive and be at ease and be nourished. That's why Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. And nothing compares to the peace and the contentment and the courage in the face of death that comes from knowing Jesus as your good shepherd. It's part of the job of ministers, one of our privileges as ministers, to be there when people are facing their last days of life in this world. Sometimes we might even be there at the end, at their very last moments. And some of the most memorable and touching moments in my life have been when I've sat beside elderly saints on the brink of eternity. And I've heard them repeat the words of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Or I have all that I need. That's life. That's life that will go on even beyond physical death. Can you really say that a football club or a job or a bank balance or even our most precious loved ones can give you all that you need? All that you need. All of those people, all of those things that I've just mentioned, they will have to leave us when we die. 
The good shepherd came that you would have life and have it abundantly. Part of what that means is that you would enjoy life after death itself. We've been thinking about that recently uh, in our series in Revelation here in Dremore. Um, But abundant life, real life, everlasting life is found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the last thing that we'll consider this evening. We've thought about the threats Jesus identifies. We've thought about the life that Jesus offers. We want to think thirdly, how is it that Jesus can offer us this abundant life, this life to the full? And so that brings us to consider thirdly the sacrifice Jesus has made. A sacrifice Jesus has made. How is it that we can have life to the full? After all, we are sinners. We're, we're imperfect people. It's not just that we can't live according to the commandments God has given us. In our own human nature, we don't want to. That's what happened at the fall of Adam and Eve. That, that mankind, our nature became corrupted by sin to the point where in and of ourselves, we don't even want what Christ offers. We don't want the, the life that God gives us by his word and by his commandments. So how can Jesus simply offer us life? Well, it's worth noticing here in John chapter 10 that each time Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd, he immediately goes on to describe the sacrifice that he came to make. If you look at verse 11, for example, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. This is how Jesus can offer us life, friends, because he has given up his own life. Where do we get life from if we're sinners, if we are rebels against God, if we have no inclination or ability to keep God's law and to, be, to deserve to be in his presence forever? Where can we get life? The answer is we can't by ourselves. Jesus offers us his life in exchange. And John's gospel makes very clear. The others do as well, of course. But the language of John's gospel really focuses in on the fact that this is what Jesus was sent to do. If you were to read through John's gospel, we have some copies of it at the back this evening. You would find that in almost every chapter of the gospel, we see Jesus uttering these words. The father has sent me. Or this is why I have come, to do my Father's will. Look here, for example, at chapter 10, verse 18. No one takes it from me, that's my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have, excuse me, I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up. This charge I have received from my Father. So Jesus came for this very purpose, friends, to offer his life as a ransom for our sinful lives. There's a few things that uh, this passage in John chapter 10 and elsewhere in John's gospel emphasizes to us about Jesus sacrificing himself on the cross, the nature of his death. Uh, First of all, it's emphasized to us that his death was a voluntary death. Jesus did not die against his will. That's one of the, the false teachings that you might hear in some circles, even amongst some who claim to be Christians. That, that Jesus' death was some awful, uh, it, was, it was inflicted upon him against his will. That's not true. Jesus offered up his life willingly. 
He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane just hours before he was arrested. Your will be done. The Father's will be done. Jesus willingly, consciously, gladly obeyed his heavenly Father. Number two, it's emphasized to us in this passage that Jesus' death is a substitutionary death. That the good shepherd dies for his sheep instead of his sheep having to die for themselves. Look what he says in verse 12. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. Someone's being paid to look after the sheep. They're, they're not their own sheep. Their livelihood doesn't actually depend on these sheep. They can go and get another job in the morning. Well, if it's a choice between um, facing a, a lion or a bear or something uh, or getting away with their life intact, the hired hand is just going to run away. The sheep aren't worth that much to them. Rather, Jesus says they are his sheep. He he has died for his sheep. That's how valuable and precious they are to him. He came and willingly offered up his own life in the place of his sheep, his people, for their sins. And that leads to a third thing to note about the good shepherd's sacrifice here in John chapter 10. It was a specific death. It was a specific death. It was, it was voluntary, it was sacrificial, and it was specific. Jesus died specifically for his sheep. Jesus died for men and women and boys and girls, chosen purely by God's grace, not because of anything we have done, but because God chose from before the foundations of the world to save sinners through the work of his Son. So how do you know if you're part of his flock, his, his specific people? Because you follow him when he calls to you. I mentioned earlier the shepherds would arrive back at the sheep pen. Sheep pens full of everyone's flocks. If you imagine the way it is in our day that different flocks have sprayed a little bit of colour on them somewhere. Uh, to mark them out as belonging to this or that farmer. Well imagine you have a, a pen full of sheep and all these different colours Mixing and mingling. How do you get them out? The the sheep follow their shepherd's voice. Do you hear the voice of the good shepherd calling you this evening? Follow him. Don't put it off. Don't make any more excuses. Don't be fooled by the thieves and robbers of the world. Offering you the best life. Which in fact only leads to death. Jesus came that you would have life and have it abundantly, have it to the full, have it forever, even beyond physical death. Don't ignore the call of the shepherd, follow him and receive and enjoy life from him. Just as we close, the last thing to mention about Jesus' sacrificial death is also that it is victorious. His death wasn't the end. He says in verse 18, John chapter 10, verse 18, I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. And that's exactly what happened three days after Jesus died. He rose, he conquered death. And that overflowing life that I mentioned earlier, that abundant life that Jesus talks about, friends, it's resurrection life. It's the life that Jesus can offer you even right now, even before you've died. Uh, and, and then, of course, physical resurrection 
when he returns. If you're a Christian today or if you become a Christian today, what it means is that Jesus has already given you spiritual new life, resurrection life in your soul. You're a new person. You have new desires to to walk in God's ways, to obey God's laws, to get to know your Savior better, to make him known to others. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, part of his flock, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so if you're a Christian or if you become a Christian, you begin living your, your new life now. You begin living life to the full now. Not a life yet in which you're, you're, not a life in which you're guaranteed followers or fame or fortune. Those things are thieves and robbers. Not a life in which you're guaranteed health and success. Those things leave us all in the end. But a life in which the good shepherd guides you, provides for you, nourishes and sustains you. Until eventually he returns to this earth. And we do enjoy physical resurrection as well as spiritual resurrection. And we enjoy life to the full forevermore. Look at our world this evening. What do you see? Death is everywhere. The death of relationships. The death of leadership in many areas. The death literally of thousands in war zones and hospital wards and even lying down slumped on city streets. Some say perhaps we're even seeing the death of the West as we know it. But look at Jesus and what do you see? The good shepherd who laid down his life so that his sheep could have life. And who says to you this evening, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus has secured life for his sheep by his death on the cross. You only need to hear his voice and follow him. An abundant life is yours. Amen.